Would you all pray with me? Lord God, we're grateful that you gather us by your spirit and your word, and we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. We all can go ahead and be seated. I know we are almost back to, to normal, um, but I'm, I'm going to keep, I'm going to preach from here today. That it's, I got to build up courage for that, and I'm not quite there yet. So if you don't mind, I'm just going to preach from here as we've been doing. Uh, it's, it's tempting today after that gospel reading um, to immediately focus, I think, on uh, John the Baptist. He's, he seems to be the, the hero of this story, but if you read this story closely, you'll notice it's not really about John the Baptist in, in any way. It's about Herod. It's almost all about Herod. And the story isn't by any stretch uplifting, but it is edifying, and I think, in a way, it's overwhelming uh, in that way Scripture can be over our lives, where it seems to capture us and shape us according to its own will. But to situate us into the, the story that we just heard, I'd like to give you the backstory. So Herod's brother, Philip, is uh, married to a woman, Herodias. They have some marital struggles, things aren't working out well for them, and so she leaves Philip to marry Philip's brother, Herod. Herod also, of course, had to divorce his own wife in order to marry Herodias, and this was a bad idea in general, of course. You know, you don't, I don't imagine the brothers getting along all that well afterward. In fact, historically, they do not. I can tell you about that later. But uh, it is also a bad idea because it is unscriptural according to Leviticus 18. It says a man could not marry his brother's wife. And so John the Baptist, as you all might remember, is a, a prophet whose primary calling was to declare repentance, ask for repentance, to challenge people into deeper repentance, and that's, that's just what he does with the king. He says this is all wrong. You can't do that. He does it in a very, very public way. And of course, you know who didn't like that was Herodias, the wife of Herod, the king, who uh, was a divorcee and obviously felt challenged by someone saying her marriage was illegitimate and sinful. So Herodias, Herod's new wife, absolutely loathed, hated John the Baptist. So that's the backstory. Now we get to the beginning of our story. We get to our reading where Herod and his family are at this big party. It's, a, it's his birthday party, in fact, it tells us. And Herodias's young daughter, it was challenging to read that in the story, but it's, it's actually his da- Herodias's daughter, comes out and dances for everyone. And Herod loves it. For whatever reason, I'm not sure. We can imagine. Herod loves it, and he says to his young stepdaughter, ask me for whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. And then he, he ups the ante. He actually does more. He says, uh, the text says, he swore to her, I will give you even up to half of my kingdom. So the young lady, it's actually a girl, the word is young girl. She runs off, finds her mother, Herodias. She says, what should I ask for? Herodias immediately says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. So the daughter goes back to Herod, tells him, and Herod, not all that eager to kill John, however, he gives in because he's sworn to do what she says in front of everyone. So in an instant, John's head on a platter given to 
his wife. And there are a few things that we see here, and the first is that this is a foreshadowing, in fact, of what's to come with Herod, because this Herod, this Herod is not the Herod at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew that you might remember, the Herod who, who kills all of the innocent babies. He hears about Jesus and his power, the Messiah, a king has come, and he's scared. And so he kills all the, these uh, young infant boys. This is not that Herod. This is Herod Antipas. Herod, this Herod actually succeeds in what the first Herod set out to do and that he is responsible ultimately, if you go all the way to the end of the story, for giving away Jesus to Pilate, who then is responsible for Jesus' own death. He did what the other Herod couldn't do. Now, he's different than the other Herod in this way. And it's what's interesting to me about this Herod. He is not, in fact, your standard villain. I think he is, in a way, more of a tragic figure than, than he is an actual uh, villain like you'd find in a, in a novel or a, a movie or any standard TV show because he doesn't begin by hating Jesus or John, for that matter. Did you catch that? Verse 20 says, Herod enjoyed listening to John. It says he pr- protected John. It says he even knew that John was a righteous man. He knew that he was a prophet. So Herod's feelings about John and later Jesus, I think, are ambiguous at best, especially here at the beginning. But somehow, somehow, Herod's, excuse me, John the Baptist's head still ends up on a platter. So why does it happen? I think it all happens because of that one oath, the one promise that he made to his young stepdaughter that he felt obliged to keep. Verse 26, it says, Herod was deeply grieved, but because of his oath, he didn't want to refuse her. And so my question, maybe all of our question is, what could lead someone who is interested in the things of God, recognizes John as a prophet, lead him to do something so ungodly. And if you think about it, I mean, what would have happened, I wonder, had Herod been converted by John? How would this story have changed? We'll never know. I mean, it's a dumb question in some ways. We'll never know what would have happened. But it seems Herod was almost there. He was ambiguous. He was right on the edge. He was interested. And yet we see what happens. But I think what we learn here in some way is that all of our commitments, whether we recognize them or not, our commitments can actually enslave us. They can cause us to do horrible things. Herod makes a public oath in front of all of his guests, the leaders of Judea and Galilee, and he has to keep it. His oath is what gets him in trouble. And I wonder for us, how many of us have found ourselves in places where we have to keep our commitments and our oaths even when they're wrong. I'm sure you can think of obvious examples, perhaps, in movies, films, you know, somebody does something wrong and they promise they've got to keep it. But I think there's actually some ambiguity for us as well. I think that there's a more uh, uh, subtle and complex way that this works in our lives. I wrestled a lot over this this past week. Because on the one hand, I don't believe that we are an oath-keeping or oath-making culture anymore. 
Even while if you were to look not that long ago, we did make oaths commonly in ordinary circumstances. Think of uh, folks you'd hear about from your parents or grandparents' generation. They'd make a deal and they'd spit on their hands and they'd shake on it. It's an oath. It's a formal commitment. It's public. Or you can think further back, like medieval knights who would swear their allegiance to a, a king or a movement, and they'd do it on their sword. They'd pledge an oath to their master. And you see this, of course, all over in the Old Testament. Oaths are made everywhere. David, for instance, swears to love his friend Jonathan. It's public. It's a commitment made with intentionality. But today, I think there is a difference in that we only make oaths in the most formal of circumstances, right? You make them at your marriage. If you get married, you make an oath. If you get ordained, you make an oath. If you're a president, you make an oath on a Bible in front of a lot of people. We do make oaths, but they are only in the most formal ceremonial settings. And you could, in fact, presumably, go through your whole life and never make a single oath. You could never make one. But I wonder if there are some other ways that we actually do express our commitments. It might be interior, but nonetheless just as powerful. Think about it this way. So an oath, we're going to get technical here. An oath is a public commitment where we agree to be, excuse me, where we agree to be held accountable by someone or something. So there's the commitment part, there's the accountability part. A public commitment made where you, are, where you agree to be held accountable. Now, if we remove all the ceremonial part, I think you could argue that we all make oaths all the time, just without the formality. We all make oaths. We all make commitments, don't we? Think of it this way. I once knew this young businessman from a parish I was at some years ago, and he was so committed to providing for his family to giving them a childhood that he had not had as a lower-income uh, family from his lower-middle-class upbringing, that he ended up giving up all of his time to his work. The story is predictable. He succeeded. He did well. He kept his oath, but he lost the most essential thing that he strove to protect, which was the relationship with his children and with his wife. You see where I'm going? How about this one? I also knew, this is way back, uh, a lady grew up with a small town. She wanted more than anything else to have uh, incredible experiences in life and in the world. She moved all over the place. She made interesting friends. She had remarkable experiences, great stories. But the friendships that she made were all relatively shallow. They never uh, seeded well in her life. They were uh, dispensable. And so ultimately, at the end, she had no one she could share her experiences with, and she could no longer enjoy them herself, right? You can tell stories to people, but they're only fun if they're interested, right? So even the thing that she sought to keep, the oath she'd made, that she would have an interesting life, the joy of that was completely gone, and she had no one to share it with. So I do believe, I think we, I think we do have commitments that we bind ourselves to even if we don't admit it. We have commitments we bind ourselves to even if we don't admit it. It might sound like this. I, I, I will not be like my father. Or how about this one? I will be recognized for what I've become or what I've achieved. 
or I will get my mother to respect me, or my children, they're going to have opportunities I never had. And of course, we might not say them in public. We might not even say them to our friends. They might not be formalized. But they are oaths. And that they are deeply seated commitments that drive all of our decisions and the things that matter most to us. They are commitments that we feel pressured to keep in the presence, this is it, in the presence of our families, communities, and our culture. So you see, they're public. They are, in fact, public. And look, I should add that oaths are not bad. I'm, I'm not actually negating the power of an oath. Oaths are good. I do think oaths are good. I, can, I know of two oaths in my life, one to my marriage, one uh, to the church, both made in front of God. I, I think they're very important. I hold close to both of them. You have oaths as well. You can think of them. I'm not sure what they are. You've made public commitments that are good, that you need and must follow through with in order to reap the benefits of what they allow. But you see, the problem, the problem comes when we take vows that we don't even know that we've taken, like the ones that I just mentioned. Because when you do that, it means that you are living under a power that you never intended to come under. It means that someone or something or some experience is ruling over you and controlling what you care about, the decisions you make, and the kind of relationships you have, even if you don't know about it. And so you've got to find out what it is. You know, there's one other danger here. There's one other problem with oaths like this that might be even bigger. And it's this. It's when we don't reflect on who is holding us accountable to the vows that we make. Remember just a minute ago, I said that oaths are commitments made where someone or something holds us accountable. So there's this whole public element. There's a public component to it. And with Herod, it was, of course, the crowd, all of his guests who were important. He couldn't go back on his promise. And your marriage vows, it's God. It's God and all the people present who watch you make those vows. But in the vows that you never, ever intended to make, it's going to be either yourself, some cultural expectation that's hidden behind your heart, or a wound, maybe, that simply won't heal. And none of these sources of accountability, none of them, will ever be two things. They'll never be reliably good or gracious to you. None of those sources of accountability can be stable, can actually be good for the long term, and none of them will have mercy on your soul. Here's what I mean. You can make vows in the presence of good cultural expectations, right? You can have friends who say, don't steal, don't cheat. You get where I'm going. But as soon as things change, you no longer have that cultural expectation. You can have good friends who ask you to make bad decisions. You can have good colleagues who pressure you into making uh, bad ideas, getting in trouble. You see what I mean? The cultural expectations of any given moment can always change. Things that hold you accountable don't necessarily stay the same. And the other part of this is these other accountability programs, they will drain you. They will drain you. Because your, your friends or your cultural expectations, whatever it might be that's holding you accountable to your most deep-seated oaths and commitments and promises, they will not release you. 
they're not going to let you go. And so the only reliably good and truly gracious accountability for the vows that you hold and cherish the most is God himself. Because God is the only one who promises to be good. He is the only one who's enduringly good. And he is the only one who will be gracious to you always. That, of course, doesn't mean that he won't keep you accountable. If you look at, just look at the Old Testament, he keeps people accountable all over the place. But he's good. He's reliable. He is God today. He's God tomorrow. And, most important, he is the only one who can forgive you. And he's the only one who wants to forgive you. You see, you turn to God, you hold your vows accountable in his presence, and you will always have someone hold you accountable and can forgive you. I think probably the best example of this is David himself, King David. In the uh, psalm we just read, he says some amazing things, but first, if you, if you look at, back at the life of David, you see that he makes oaths all over the place. So he makes an oath, as I mentioned, to Jonathan. He makes an oath to Saul, which is, seems like a bad idea. He makes oaths to Israel. He's making oaths all over his life, but he does all of these oaths in the face of God. He does them all in the relational context of God's goodness. And when you read through the Psalms, you see this woven all the way through. All of his commitments are made in light of God's own person. And so when you look at something like the psalm we just heard beautifully sung, David says things like this. All of the earth, it's the Lord's. He says, the Lord is strong and mighty in battle, not me. He says, lift up your gates, the kingdom of Israel. Lift up your gates and let the king of glory come in. You see what I'm getting at. David is free because he has placed all of his commitments in the hands of God. He can be free. He is a man of immense responsibility. He's a man who's made dozens of commitments, but he can be free. Even as he fails to keep his vows, even as he struggles to be a moral exemplar, even as he struggles to be faithful, he knows where his God is, and that gives him freedom. Where else can you repent and be forgiven and bank on it? It's something that David knows. Finally, just to close real quick, there's an old uh, term for this word oath that you may not be aware of. We use it all the time, but, but you might know what. It's the word sacramentum. Sacramentum is a Latin term, and it means oath. It's where we get this term sacrament. And so if you think about it in this way, an oath, excuse me, a sacrament is simply an outward and visible sign of a real and substantial promise, an oath, something that's already been proven. And so I challenge all of you, when you come up to the altar today, you receive blood, you receive his body, you receive bread, you receive wine. Look at those things as living tokens, living enactors of a promise that has already been made on your behalf. It is a promise of God's own favor for you, because it's made in his own blood. That's what we find in a sacrament. That's what we find in the cross, an oath that can never be broken because God has made it in the own fellowship that he has with his eternal personhood, and he's made it both for you and for me, and all other oaths that you make should be made on behalf of that oath. 
So this week, three simple things. Think on what vows or commitments you live under. Make your commitments in light of God's accountability, not anyone else's. And then at the end of the day, at the beginning of the day, look to the oath that is everlasting, the blood that's already been paid on your behalf, the promise that's sure forever and ever that's for all of us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.